if you take a closer look around the world, two countries, Greece and Turkey, seem have nothing to do with each other. But given the reality, we're living into this under-globalization, and two countries today are also facing this major territorial, political, and also this economic struggles between themselves. Now, what is the deal between Greece and Turkey at this moment, and why is it essential that we need to address those matters even today? Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite Mr. Tom Lord. Now, Tom is a researcher and a writer focused on political violence and armed conflict, mostly in Europe and the Middle East. And of course, that he's the co-founder of MilitantWire.com, where he mostly writes about Greece, Turkey, and the Balkans. Now, Tom, welcome to The Missing Piece. Thanks for having me on, Will. No problem, Tom. The pleasure is all mine. You know, as we mentioned before, the world continues to follow this war in Ukraine. Of course, that we know on one hand, we are living in this what we called Volca period. So in other words, nothing should be certain, but everything should happen with a big surprise. But meanwhile, we can't just only focus on the war in Ukraine, but I want you to help us to understand what exactly happening between the country of Greece and Turkey at this moment, and why is it essential that we need to understand this ongoing struggle between those two countries? Well, well, as, as much as I hate to uh, uh, bring it right back to Ukraine, because I know you want to you want to find out what's going on on the periphery of that conflict. Um, Ukraine might actually have something to do with this, um, as my friend and co-founder of Militant Wire, Lucas Weber, uh, brilliantly said. Uh, the war in Ukraine, Russia's outright invasion of Ukraine, the state-on-state -state war has really broken the post-World War II taboo on war in Europe, mm. if such a thing ever truly existed. It certainly seemed to have during the Cold War. Uh, um, and so now uh, we can get in a little bit about the government of Turkey, and we'll do a deeper dive. But um, Turkey is currently under the administration of the AK Party, uh, Justice and Peace Party, AK Party, uh, the head of which is Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Mm. Um, he is a democratically elected figure. Uh, however, a lot of people are rather skeptical or uh, uh, about how democratic Turkey mm. is. Um, so uh, he very much has a lot of the qualities of a strong man, um, very militaristic, very nationalistic. Um, and so one of his strategies, it seems, both um, domestically as well as perhaps uh, uh, in terms of his own geopolitical strategies, has been to stoke up uh, very old tensions with neighbor Greece. Very briefly, uh, Greece, of course, used to be a part of the Ottoman Empire. Mm. Um, they, uh, their war of independence um, began in the early 19th century, lasted uh, until 1832. Um, a small part of Greece, uh, the main peninsula, separated from the Ottoman Empire. There were successive wars thereafter throughout the 19th century, uh, uh, and then also two Balkan wars leading up into World War One. Mm. Um, Greece enlarged itself um, to about the state that it's at presently. Uh, it's worth noting after World War after World War One, um, the Ottoman Empire, of course, collapsed. Out of that, you got the Turkish Republic, 
uh, and the Turkish Republic was very much forged under fire. Um, several nations had invaded it, one of those having been Greece. And the Greeks uh, punched quite deeply into Asia Minor, or Anatolia, um, during the Greco-Turkish War um, that, that lasted from 1919 until uh, 1922. Mm-hmm. Um, and during this, during this campaign, this, this war of irredentism to reclaim uh, much of what was ancient Greece, um, as well as a, a chunk of the Ottoman Empire that was heavily ethnically Greek, um, uh, they ended up getting, that is the Greeks, they ended up getting driven to the sea by the uh, newly forged uh, Turkish Turkish army um, that was being led by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk and his compatriots. Um, <coughs> pardon me. So, uh, during this war, the Greeks were driven to the sea, um, and the war concluded with the Treaty of Lausanne, which was between the newly formed Turkish Republic, uh, the British Empire, um, the Kingdom of Italy, um, I mean, the various allied powers at that time. And that established the borders between Greece and Turkey as they are today, mm. or at least as they are recognized by the UN Conventional Law of the Seas. And this is very important because according to UNCLOS, or UN Conventional Law of the Seas, uh, maritime borders are determined 12 nautical miles out from a country's continental shelf. Mm. Uh, now, the definition of the continental shelf uh, has been the subject of several international court cases between many countries that have maritime disputes, um, Greece and Turkey being no exception. Uh, if anyone were to look at a map, um, especially the Aegean Sea uh, of you know, Greece's, Greece's maritime borders, um, they would see a large band of islands running almost all the way up to the coastline of Turkey. Um, and then outward from there, projecting a 12 nautical mile um, exclusive economic zone, um, which every country is entitled to according to UN law. Um, if you're just to look at a map and then compare the size of Greece, a country of about eight or nine million people in Greece, and then a diaspora of about four million people living elsewhere, mostly the United States, Canada, and Australia. Uh, first is Turkey, which is a country of about 90 million people, much larger and geographically much larger. Um, you can, you, one, one can get an idea of how the Turks would feel hemmed in by this outsized maritime border controlled by Greece. Now, this especially becomes an issue when you're talking about not only uh, naval uh projection of power so you know militarily it's an issue especially when a lot of these islands like for instance the greek island of Chios, which is one of greece's larger uh uh, east mediterranean islands is looking directly across a channel at the very large turkish city of izmir they can see one another Mm. so since the treaty of lausanne and uh, uh turkey having lost um well, you know, it was the Ottoman Empire at the time, but having lost a great deal of uh, real estate in the in the Aegean, um, the militarization of these islands has been at issue uh, for reasons that everyone can can, can understand. Um, furthermore, in terms of economic issues, Turkey feels hemmed in because they have begun some pretty aggressive hydrocarbon exploration mm-hmm. in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, they have drill ships, the Orukrais. Uh, is is the main one. 
that have been exploring for pockets of hydrocarbons off of the northeastern coast of Cyprus, for instance. Mm. Um, and for your, for your audience who's not familiar with the makeup of that island, that is mostly ethnically Greek, but also has a sizable Turkish population and has been split in half since uh, a, Turkey was forced to invade in 1974 because of that. Uh, the Greek junta in Greece proper at that time actually tried to throw a coup on the island of Cyprus, which of course has its own separate government. We won't go down that road. It's mm. totally separate discussion. But uh, it's, Cyprus has been split uh, split in two ever since. Um, the northern 35% of the island actually being controlled by the government of Turkey. It's, it's, it's administrated by its own government, but the Turkish military is present. So Turkey's been exploring... Uh, for hydrocarbon pockets just off the north of Cyprus. This has been a big issue. So the maritime issues are are at really at the heart of it. Uh, history is also at the heart of it. Um, Greece and Turkey uh, have, have both, in their violent interactions with one another since Greek independence, have experienced serious intercommunal violence, massive population exchanges, mm. um, episodic periods of... Uh, of tensions that are both rooted in history as well as one could argue ethnicity or even religion. Um, Turkey, of course, being a Muslim country, a majority Muslim country, and Greece, majority uh, Orthodox Christian country, though that probably doesn't have as much to do with it as does the raw uh, geographical situation of it. So anyways, I hope that's a fair um, introduction, and I'm sorry that I bounced around quite a bit. No problem, Tom. Now, again, I want to go back to what you said. As a matter of fact, that you really brought up some significant points because we know today, when we look at the war in Ukraine and also we look at, you know, again, uh, look at the sea power and also many countries are standing at the crossroads regarding what we called territorial disputes. So in other words, especially today, that when people look at their own territories or when the nations are very interested in expanding or the ownership of the territories, that this is rather crucial, not only for the government, but also uh, in terms of you know accumulating resources. But Tom, my next question is, again, based on what you said, can we just simply understand the reason why the conflict it's going on today between Turkey and Greece, it's simply because this territorial dispute, or there are many other reasons behind it. We know that previously when you and I, we have uh, um, exchanged emails and informations, you also use a very interesting phrase. It's called irregular migration. And I think this is something that we... I guess we could have heard it before several years ago regarding other territorial dispute, but today, under this today's circumstances, what does that mean when you say or when you explain that irregular migration related to the issue with territorial dispute? Help us understand, Tom. Yeah, sure. So if if let us say that there for the purpose of our discussion will there is a soft conflict presently between Greece and Turkey, or a cold conflict is probably a better term. Um, one of the facets of it, uh, if you're on the Greek side, you might say a tactic of the Turks. If you are a, if you are Turkish on the Turkish side, uh, you might say a feature of all of this mm. is uh, 
irregular migration. So you mentioned globalization, um, uh, the current world we're living in, um, some of some of the other global wars. America has has been uh, uh, prosecuting its global war on terror for 21 years. There are other conflicts that have broken out post Arab Spring in 2011. Um, climate change has caused all kinds of people uh, uh, to be displaced. So there is a mass movement of people uh, it, uh, currently, um, especially in Asia uh, and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, due to, like I said, conflict, climate change, um, uh, drought, uh, you know, economic conditions. So people are on the move. And one of those destinations to know surprise would be northern and western europe countries like germany sweden france the united kingdom mm. uh, and the main entry point for those countries is often greece and greece via turkey especially if you're coming from afghanistan pakistan iraq syria um these places um you naturally you're going to enter through turkey um you're probably going to spend quite a bit of time in Turkey, depending on what your means are and what your personal resources are, um, and then what the political situation in both Turkey and Greece are. And so uh, when you find yourself in Turkey, ultimately you want to make it into the European Union. The first point of entry mm. will be Greece, and that will either be one of the many uh, Aegean islands, one of Greece's eastern Mediterranean islands, or over the land border that Greece shares with European Turkey in Thrace. Um, but you're most likely going to end up hopping, hopping on some some kind of vessel, um, probably a very poor quality, and and taking the sea route into Greece. And the idea is that as soon as you hit a Greek island, let us say it's the island of Lesbos, um, you're going to be interred by the UNHCR, uh, actually the Greek government with some UNHCR observers there, ideally. It doesn't always work like that. I've spent a lot of time in these camps, and they're, mm. not, they're, they're really terrible places. But once you get there... Ideally, you're going to then file your paperwork for asylum in another country. Uh, maybe you already have some family who's residing in Germany or Sweden or another destination country. Maybe you're the first from your family to try to get there, and you can make a compelling case for why you don't want to stay in Greece, why you want to go uh, elsewhere. Um, and so that that is what's happening, and it's it's really it's it's really no policy of either country that people are on the move. However. Turkey, uh, again, um, in theory, has control of its borders. And so the Greeks and other European governments have accused the Turks of treating the inflow, and I say irregular migration because since 2014 approximately, circa, a massive uptick of people fleeing their countries of origin for a variety mm. of reasons, much of which includes political violence at home. So uh, Turkey has been accused not only of Greece, but uh, uh, by other European governments of kind of treating the flow of people hemmed up within Turkey as a spigot and, and opening the valve when it's politically convenient for Turkey, when Turkey is trying to leverage some sort of uh, concessions or, or even capital from the European Union as it's gotten in, uh, you know, migration deals uh, between the between the two, um, or threatening Greece with it. And Turkey has outright, actually, they, they, they have they have explicitly threatened Greece as well as uh, the European Union more broadly of, uh, again, opening up the tap, which is a terrible term to use when we're speaking about human beings, but um, 
opening up the tap and letting uh, desperate people again flow back into Greece. And Greece, of course, uh, has very few resources. It's, it is mm. a country that has been struggling with its own economy. Um, and again, it's a small nation of about uh, 9 million people. And, and uh, the, the inflow of incredibly desperate people, especially on small uh, Aegean islands, has really pushed um, uh, Greece to the limit in terms of what it can do in a humanitarian sense for, for a lot of these folks. Um, and it's, 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 it goes without saying, it's been incredibly rough on, on the migrants who have been uh, used as pawns between these two governments at odds with one another. But that's a huge feature of the cold conflict between uh, Greece and Turkey. And then one should also note that a great number of the migrants, many of whom are refugees, mm. are also Muslims. And Greece is a deeply orthodox Christian country. It is uh, quite central to its identity. Um, and then the right wing in Greece and Greek nationalists um, take that quite seriously and add a further component, I suppose, of national outrage to the fact I'm going to put this in the terms of a right wing Greek nationalist, and please forgive me, and I don't mean to cause any offense, but... Uh, being invaded, um, mm. uh, particularly by Muslims, which has a historical significance to anybody buying into the right-wing foundational myths of Greece. Anyways, I probably went much further on that than you needed, and I apologize with all. That's okay, Tom. You know, it's interesting that you explain, because we understand, besides the political reasons and besides this social unrest, more citizens across the continent are seeing other opportunities in the land of hopes. So in other words, people move for many or various reasons. But meanwhile, I want to talk about something deeper, and I know you're the expert on that one. Current leader of Turkey, Erdogan, and if I'm not mistaken, again, again correct me if I'm wrong, has been one of the quite controversial figures in the world. So in other words, when we look at this Turkish and U.S. relationship, has been always been hot and cold. But meanwhile, that we know that Turkey has also been a very active member, you know, as a NATO uh, a member as well. You know, again, uh, Erdogan has been very vocal, expressing his desires and interest in either supporting the country or blocking the countries to become additional member for NATO. But meanwhile, I want to ask you, uh, uh, Tom, given everything together, how should we assess or how should we evaluate the current political changes or the political situation in Turkey today? And also we know in the year of 2023, there's going to be an upcoming election. And how do you think that current political atmosphere in Turkey, it's going to change or hopefully change next year? And how about the performance of er Erdogan at this moment? How much do you think people believe that this is the person who will continue to shoulder the responsibilities for the country? That's, that's an excellent question. I'm really glad you, you point us towards the upcoming elections in Turkey. Recep Tayyip Erdogan is a really interesting figure. Turkey, since its foundation in 1923, has had a lot of fits and starts at democracy. Mm. Um, it's, it's very first, uh, it, it's, its leader, uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, died in 1938, just before World War II. 
left the country kind of hanging. It was really ruled by a military junta, uh, uh, more or less, until the 1950s. It had a really good run at democracy. That was overthrown in the first of many coups. There was another in 61. There's another in the 70s. There was a quite brutal coup in the 1980s. There was a soft coup in the 1990s. In the early 2000s, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his allies emerged on the scene. Um, he did not previously have much, well, he did actually, he was, he was, he was a, a prominent Istanbul politician, but he didn't come up to some of the normal ranks of, uh, uh, I guess, the, the Turkish political class. Uh, he's been very influential. He had a ally in the early days named Fethullah Gülen, um, and I'm going to skip over a lot of really meaty and interesting history in the early mm. 2000s and the 2010s to go right up to 2016 um, for for a attempted coup d'etat that I was present for in Istanbul. And this has really changed the situation, the political picture in Turkey. So on the night of July 15th, 2016, um, a group of army officers, most of whom were either uh, secularist, Kemalist, ultra-nationalist Turks or members of Recep Tayyip Erdogan's rival, Fethullah Gülen's um, kind of movement, let's call it, the Gülenist movement, they tried, to, they tried to overthrow the government, but they did a very bad job of it, mm. uh, whereas normally the Turkish military has been quite successful. Um, we're just going to fast forward, but in the middle of that coup, as uh, Turkish uh, armed forces were... Uh, you know, uh, taking over television stations and, um, you know, main thoroughfares. Um, Erdogan managed to get through to a CNN Turk reporter and he came over the air via FaceTime, if I'm not mistaken, on the app. And he told the people, I have not fled the country. You need to go out into the streets and you need to challenge the coup plotters right now. And they did. Uh, Erdogan has a very strong following of not only nationalist Turks, but also very religious Turks. Um, mm. And for your for your audience who don't know, the founding father of Turkey, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, was actually quite secular and quite Western-leading. Mm. In fact, he really cracked down on um, on Islam in the country and and uh, on religion in general. He formed the Diyanet, which is a, a state body to handle religion. Erdogan has masterfully um, sewn together nationalist Turkish nationalism in the style of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk with Sunni Islam. It's quite mm. beautiful and I, I won't completely credit him for it, but it is really the advent of his party and his movement. So this coup ends up failing. The people uh, in popular resistance overthrow the plotters and Erdogan sets about purging the military, the government, the universities, the press corps, of all of his opponents. So we're in kind of a new Turkey here. Prior to that, um, he had also had quite a contentious uh, election um, between a left-wing coalition at the center of which was a party called HDP. Um, a lot of people will, of course, be familiar with the ongoing internal conflict in Turkey between its ethnic minority, the Kurds, uh, and the Turkish Armed Forces. So. The political picture in Turkey today, uh, fast forwarding from all of that, is one in which AKP uh, and their nationalist coalition partners, MHP, are very quite dominant politically, um, which is not to, which is not a totally accurate assessment of 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 the mm, 
uh, political attitudes of mm. most Turks, but rather a symptom of repression in the country. AKP is incredibly dominant. Nonetheless, um, the upcoming elections that are coming in 2023 uh, are still being closely observed. As dominant as AKP is post-coup, um, as dominant as they have been on a lot of issues. I mean, mm. Turkey has really projected its power outwards, not only in Syria, they have an ongoing war there, but uh, they've also been furnishing various countries, some some outright allies and others kind of business partners with their Bayraktar TBT, TB2 drones and other drones. Um, so, you know, the war in Azerbaijan, Armenia. Um, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been quite popular on these issues. He's been popular uh, on the outward projection of Turkish power, um, you know, their, their missions in some, to train troops in Somalia, etc. Um, if you're a nationalist Turk, um, you know, you might actually buy his rhetoric that he is reforging the Ottoman Empire in some kind of way. So, you know, not, not dissimilar from other strong men in the world. He is very much an irredentist who is kind of... Um, grasping at some lost, uh, you know, grander national identity. So we have the, we have the elections that are coming up. And if you were looking at all of these things that I've, I've kind of badly and clumsily laid out for you, you would say, hmm, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his nationalist allies at AKP and MHP are in a pretty strong position. I don't see why they should be worrying about the upcoming elections. Well, the Turkish economy is in dire straits. It is only getting worse, actually. Uh, the purchasing power of the Turkish lira is the worst that I've seen it in a very long time. Turks are pretty upset. Um, uh, freedom of press in the country ha has, has uh, uh, absolutely been throttled post-coup. So, um, you know, a lot of Turks are not able to freely express their discontent in the public fora. Um, and, uh, yeah, you have to imagine, and, and there are a lot of issues simmering, uh, beneath the surface of Turkish society that one could see as being quite volatile. So, uh, many analysts, um, this does not include myself, but I think it's a valid point. Many analysts think that the tensions between Greece and Turkey have been intentionally stoked by Erdogan and his allies um, mm. in order to gain political capital at home as he heads into a rather volatile election year in 2023. Tom, again, I know you're very busy and I stay with me. I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, we talk about the current political struggles and also this economic situations in Turkey. And of course, I wanna go back to the conversation regarding Greece and Turkey also at this moment. You know, one thing, another thing that when I read over or when I tried to investigate a little bit more regarding the struggle between the two countries, one thing that we have to understand that nothing happens by accident. So in other words, because the accumulation of the reasons or accumulation of the political struggles, the countries tend to clash over each other. Now, let me ask you next very simple question. Again, given the fact that if there's an ongoing political or economic struggle between any countries, that, I, that could directly impact the neighboring countries or even across the continent. So since you're saying that Greek and Turkey are locked in this struggle, how much do you think it actually matters to the international community? So in other words, 
why do you think other countries should pay attention to what's happening in Greece and what's happening in Turkey today? And do you see or can we see any mediators to solve the issue or soften the struggle at this moment? What do you say to that? Yeah, excellent question. Um, probably, probably the most immediate stakeholder uh, in terms of a multilateral institution, uh, you know, within the international community, who's looking at this with tremendous concern, is uh, Jens Stoltenberg and the rest of the Transatlantic Alliance. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, NATO is probably quite nervous. Turkey is NATO's second largest military, mm -hmm. uh, and by no short sum. Um, yeah, Turkey has incredible military capability. Um, the, the Greeks also punch way above their weight for as small a country as they are. They've been spending above uh, 2% of their GDP on defense uh, well within to their economic crisis that goes back to 2011. Um, and that is a matter of necessity. Uh, mm. uh, so so NATO is quite concerned. What would this do to the transatlantic alliance? Well, we got a small picture of that back in 1974 when Turkey... Uh, as I said, or in their in their perspective, <coughs> forgive me. Um, when Turkey was forced to invade the island of Cyprus, a sovereign nation, uh, Greece and Turkey uh, did duke it out. Now it was Cypriot Greeks who did the majority of the fighting, but nonetheless, we got a picture of what it looks like when two NATO members go to war. Um, mm -hmm. You know, NATO has Article Five: an attack on one is an attack on all. But that comes from outside of the alliance. What happens when an alliance member attacks another alliance member? Mm. This is something of great concern, um, and it's being watched by members of uh, the U.S. Senate, like Bob Menendez, etc. But the United States um, and the West are quite split on this issue. Um, there are a lot of United States politicians who are very pro-Turkey, simply in a business sense. Mm. There are others who see the incredible geostrategic value of Turkey and uh, consider that of greater weight than a relationship with Greece. Uh, then there are a lot of a lot of policymakers and lawmakers in the United States who see Greece as, as a more faithful ally for a variety of reasons, a lot of which are, are steeped in history, etc. So that's NATO. Um, the European Union is also quite concerned, um, and they play various games. France, uh, for instance, has been very pro-Greek. Um, more recently, uh, so has Italy, but that's not always historically been the case, whereas Germany has been very... Mm, I will use the term uh, tolerant of a lot of Turkish behavior, and they have a very close working business relationship with Turkey, as well as a very important historical relationship, not only with the Turkish Republic, but with the former Ottoman Empire. Mm. Um, Germany, much to the ire of Greece, continues to sell Turkey uh, advanced weapon systems, including uh, you know leopard tanks, uh, main battle tanks, etc., um, so the European Union is quite divided on, on the issue of, of Greco-Turkish bilateral relations as well. Funnily enough, Spain has been very pro-Turkish, even though um, they were one of the former uh, pigs economies. It was called Southern European economy, a Mediterranean country that shares a lot of a lot in common culturally with Greece. Um, so the European Union is quite divided on it. Now, the broader world, uh, zooming out of how, how the West should see uh, Greco-Turkish bilateral relations, um, Russia is very concerned about this. Russia has a close historical relationship with Greece because, again, Russia is a Eastern Orthodox Christian country. 
Um, Russia, uh, you know, had no small part in, in both the independence of Greece as well as Serbia and Bulgaria, other countries who separated from the Ottoman Empire. Yet Russia also, uh, by means of, by, by, by just sheer necessity, needs to have a functional relationship with Turkey. Quite a bit of this has to do with Russia needing to get in and out of the Black Sea into the Mediterranean and to project its naval power outwards, um, as well as, um, you know, essentially uh, through Armenia sharing border with Turkey, um, 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 you know, Armenia being a close ally. Um, they're currently cooperating on Armenia and Azerbaijan. That's, well, they're <laughs> they say they are. Um, yeah, so Russia needs to have a very close relationship with both countries. A war between the two uh, would not only make it impossible, well, nearly impossible for Russia to navigate in and out of the Black Sea via the, mm. the, uh, the Bosporus, but uh, it, it would also put them in an awkward situation. Um, China, kind of the same. Um, you know, China likes to do business both in, in Greece and in the Balkans. China actually considers uh, Greece its entryway to Europe. Mm. Uh, China has very big strategic interests in Greece's port of Piraeus, um, mainly economic. Um, and China also needs to be able to navigate um, and maintains favorable relationship with Turkey. So um, it would not be a good thing for China either if the two were to go to war. More broadly, um, I think a war between the two would embolden irredentist governments um, or regimes around the world. Um, it would it would again kind of erode this sense of um, of international relations and diplomacy. Um, you know, exhausting all means before war. And I think it would probably encourage a lot of governments who are in a similar economic and political position, as well as, you know, have a, have a very large military hammer as Turkey to maybe take a bite out of their neighbor where they have some some genuine historical uh, geographic claims. Mm. Tom, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to something quite simple. You know, again, going back to the point that when we look at the war in Ukraine and when we look at any political or social unrest across the continent, people are more and more interested in knowing, or should I say, discovering or understanding the concept of democracy. You know, for decades that we believe U.S., you know, one of the greatest countries in the world, that really supposed to be the example of democracy today. But meanwhile, that when we look at this domestic political and also this economic unrest in the US, of course, that we also mentioned Ukraine, the war in Ukraine and also right now this political violence and armed conflict between uh, uh, Greece and Turkey. Tom, you're the expert and also, of course, that you wrote many pieces for the Middle East and also any other countries. How do you think that we should understand the word democracy today? I mean, is is it everything happening today that actually elevating the meaning of democracy or we are coming to the end of democracy, but instead the world is trying to figure out another universal system so that we can coexist for in the long run? What do you think? Uh, well, it's, it's that that is a difficult question, uh, and I am notoriously bad at 
theory, but I will I will take a shot at it. Uh, yeah, democracy is definitely eroding mm. um, around the world. And I can start with the West, for example, right? So you want to take um, it would be it would be much easier for me as a Westerner to criticize Turkish democracy to say, um, I am going to be very skeptical of election results, in mm. particular Anatolian provinces this in, coming in 2023, um, especially in AKP-dominated uh, rural areas, um, which is for me to suggest that there is impropriety, um, that there that there is uh, corruption, that there is anti-democratic activity that is going to propel AKP and Erdogan to the top of the polls. Well, that would be very easy for me to speculate upon because I'm a Westerner and, you know, I can wag my finger at Eastern countries. But let's say uh, just just next door, right, if, if from a Western perspective, Greece is more European and, 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 you know, there's kind of this, it's not a myth, it's a truth, but everyone always says, oh, Greece is, you know, the, the, the birthplace of democracy. Well, yeah, but like in between Greece having ancient Greece, which, mm. you know, it's, 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 ancient Greece's relationship to modern Greece is very dubious. A lot has happened between them and, and ancient Greece. And, That's and between, right. between, between Athenian democracy and present day, there have been many, many, many dictatorships in Greece, many of them quite brutal, in fact. Uh, in modern Greece, there have been like five or six coups d'etat uh, in the 20th century alone, so democracy is quite dubious in Greece. In present day, in, in present day Greece, if you want to compare um, election integrity between Greece and Turkey, and say the integrity of elections in Greece is much better, and it's you know monitored by the European Union, this and that body, well, uh, Greece still has its democratic problems. The opposition party, PESOK, uh, the Socialist Party, um, Greece is currently run by a center right or far-right party, depending on how you want to look at it, new democracy, their opponents have just accused them of wiretapping, and they are credible uh, accusations. In fact, the European Union um, was the one who discovered that uh, the political opposition in Greece were, was having their phones tapped. So uh, the health of democracy in Greece seems to be, in modern Greece, seems to be quite dubious as well. In the United States, um, you know, nearly one half of my country, let's say, let's say conservatively, will one third of my country does not believe in the results of the 2020 election in my mm. country. So that just shows you where democracy is at in the United States. Um, it is dubious elsewhere, um, but there are also uh, wholesome examples. Well, I, I, and, and, and then there are there are also examples of, of where it is it is it, it, democracy is is it is still chugging along mm. but a lot of people don't like the results because um you know democracy is the the voice of you know the popular will it's the vox populi right so so in italy we just had some elections uh, and, and Italy is interesting because Italy is a part of the European Union, but it is also a sovereign country that has all of its own elections. But Italy That's just right. elected the furthest right government it has had since the fascist party in World War II, mm. um, which that's the voice of the people. That's their will. Um, and you should say, okay, that's over and done with, and now we'll see how that plays out. But the European Union is quite upset about that. In fact, uh, Ursula, Ursula van der Leyen um, was kind of suggesting that Italy could be sanctioned depending upon how far right this government conducts itself. So 
broader bodies um, seem to, in their own way, kind of be challenging uh, democracy as well. In the rest of the world, um, I don't know. I'm not sure how... There are times, Will, when I become... Um, I don't, I, I don't want to say concerned or even just I, I ponder the idea that maybe the, the idea, that maybe the concept of democracy is losing its popularity elsewhere in the world. However, that's, that's an incredibly ignorant thing to say because you have folks who are struggling for some variety of democracy mm. all across the planet, whether you want to talk about, you know, the communist insurgency in the Philippines or the very real multifaceted insurgency going on right now in Myanmar um, for people who want to uh, topple a military dictatorship and have their voice heard. Um, what would that look like in a, a country with such a diverse ethnic makeup and would democracy thrive there? I'm not sure. I'm optimistic. However, democracy seems to be in trouble. Um, mm. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know. I will be rather, uh, I don't know, I guess Buddhist about it and say, well, let's see. We'll wait and see. But uh, uh, yeah, I think democracy is in bad shape. And where where you have really had your cornerstones of democracy, um, you know, the, the, the foundational countries that have, that have always kind of held down democracy and promoted it throughout the world, namely the United States, well, the U.S. is going to have a harder time projecting democratic values uh, elsewhere where, where they are not uh, a, um, uh, a natural part of the system because people will be able to look back at the current state of the, U of the U.S. and say, well, you're incredibly hypocritical and it's not working out very well for all of you folks. So maybe you you, you let us alone to uh, govern ourselves in an, uh, in an alternative system. I'm not sure what that would look like. Uh, I'm not very good at forecasting these things. But, yeah, I, I don't it wouldn't take any expert to say that uh, democracy is in trouble and, and somewhat losing its popularity around the world. But I don't know what will replace it. Well, Tom, I think that. As much as that you just mentioned, and one thing that I agree with you, number one, democracy is in trouble today. But be on the positive side, because the democracy is in trouble. And so that's why that we need to uh, form alliance or we need to form this cooperative or collaborative effort, continue to preserve and protect to democracy, not only for the U.S., but also, again, as you mentioned before, the countries in Europe and also the countries in Southeast Asia. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking to Tom Lord, and Tom Lord is a researcher and a writer focused on political violence and armed conflict. And remember, he's co-founded MilitantWire.com, and the majority of Tom's personal work has so far focused on Greece, Turkey, and the Balkans. Now, Tom, Thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And again, I encourage everyone to go to militantwire.com to check out Tom's pieces and also follow them on social media. I'm sure you'll be very much impressed regarding some of the critical issues and matters across the continent. Again, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate speaking with you. I wish you and your audience the best.